Welcome to Nashville Restaurant Radio, a podcast for and about the people of the Nashville restaurant scene. Now here's your host, the CEO of New Light Hospitality Solutions, Brandon Still. Hello, Music City, and welcome to Nashville Restaurant Radio. My name is Brandon Still, and I am your host, and boy, do we have a fun show today. We are talking to the one and only Joe Shaw, and Joe is now the general manager at the Standard at the Smith House, been the executive chef there for many years. Through COVID-19, they're pivoting a little bit, doing some different things. He's kind of the jack-of-all-trades there now. They're about to open for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I think, after the 4th of July. So lots of good stuff going on for him. But this interview is done, well, it's a new interview to you. Uh, We did this interview the week before last. And he came to my house, and we sat on my back porch. So if you think that I live in a bird sanctuary after listening to this, you're not wrong. Um, the back of my house backs up to some woods, and uh, we just sat back and had a conversation. I apologize for the audio. It's not wonderful. Uh, I just did get some new microphones, so hopefully that will be something we can uh, remedy here pretty soon. Um, speaking of new microphones, I do want to tell you that that's a fantastic thing, and I could do that because we have amazing sponsors like Springer Mountain Farms Chicken. And I I tell you guys all these random things about Spring Mountain Farms chicken, like they're the the greatest chicken in the entire world. Let me tell you why. Because they take extra steps to ensure the health and welfare of their chickens. They're raised in comfortable houses with an unlimited supply of clean water and fresh feed along with plenty of fresh air and room to roam, allowing them to live a normal life without the threat of predators, harm from the elements, or diseases from the flocks of birds they'd be subjected to, if they were raised outdoors. All of the practices and procedures are certified by the American Humane Association as being the most humane possible. This is verified by regular, independent audits of all their farms and facilities by the American Humane Association, the oldest and most trusted advocate of animal welfare in the country. Spring Mountain Farms was the first brand of chicken in the world to be American Humane Certified. So that's one thing. It's one of the things how they are the absolute best chicken in the world. And um, I always say this, they're doing it right. They've been doing it right. They were the first ones uh, proactively making it happen. So I'm honored to have them as a sponsor uh, to support this show. And I hope that you guys enjoyed our Friday show, The Roundup, brought to you by Springer Mountain Chicken, Springer Mountain Farms Chicken. Delia, Joe Ramsey, and I had so much fun last week, and this week we are going to be doing a Father's Day checkup. You want to know where to go to brunch for Father's Day, what's happening, where to go. We have some takeouts, we're going to talk happy hours, talk to-go drinks, lots of cool stuff going on, plus the ever-popular What's the Delia segment will be back, and uh, I'm pretty excited for what she has for us this week. So without further ado, let's get into the one, the only, Joe Shaw. Some pretty good stories going on here, guys. I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. So uh, so welcome to Nashville Restaurant Radio, Joe Shaw. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. So glad to be here. I'm. This, this is a first. You know, this, starting a podcast, you get involved mm. with speaking with chefs and 
I started off this podcast talking about how much you need to reconnect with old friends. And you and I have kind of have reconnected. And we have so many stories from our time in the past. And I thought it would be really interesting to share that with some of our listeners. So I've invited you out to my house or on my back porch and uh, recording this. First time we've ever done this. Hopefully the sound isn't too bad. I'm so happy you're here, man. Well, I'm, I'm glad to be here and uh, talk about old times and, uh, and, and going forward post-coronavirus. I've got my uh, coronavirus haircut going on. It looks good. Thanks. Uh, no ponytail anymore. No ponytail, but I'm, I'm sporting the beard. I, uh, I feel uh, it makes me look about 20 years older, but I feel about 20 years younger. So <laughs> I, I don't know how that works. I, I do feel like I, I get, you have to dress up a little bit better uh, so that people don't think you're homeless. But, I'm going uh, for the homeless look. There you go. Of all the years in the corporate world where I had to wear slacks and a dress shirt and do all of those things, Right you know, the one thing when I started my own business was I thought the, the, the cool, the crazy, like aha moment was I have to create a dress code for myself. <laughs> right. like, nobody's telling me how I need to dress, which was a weird thing because I've always just, you wear slacks and a dress shirt, you look professional, do your thing. And now I'm kind of like, I kind of like being comfortable. It's, yeah. it's pretty amazing. Well, there's nothing wrong with comfortable. <clears throat> you know, even as a chef, um, I think you have to, live up to people's expectations. And uh, it's that, that in itself has changed. Uh, 10 years ago, I think people expected uh, Chef Whites and uh, a little bit more starch. Trend has gone to short sleeve blacks and uh, more, more of the avant-garde and even, even down to uh, kitchen teas and ball caps. So let's bring our listeners back if you don't know Joe, we met, gosh, and I want to get into your story, how you got here, but I'm just going to bring people back to the moment we met, and I want to paint a picture of that time. Okay. I am 25, 26 years old. I just newly got married, and I started with a company called Creation Gardens, and this brand new restaurant opened up called Watermark, and it was the, was the restaurant in Nashville. When Watermark opened, it was the, if, if you're anybody in Nashville, when Watermark opened, that is where you went to have dinner. And you were the opening executive chef at Watermark. Walk us through how you got there in 2005. Um, Frank Stitt. In Birmingham. In Birmingham, Alabama. I'm from Birmingham, Alabama. And I had been the chef de cuisine sous chef for Frank Stitt at his Northern Italian restaurant, uh, Bottega, for a four-year period. Uh, I had worked with uh, Dean Robb, who uh, was his uh, general manager for a period. I think Dean worked with Frank for, I'm going to say, at least 10 years. I want to say, for some reason, I'm thinking 17 years, but that, that may be a little long. But anyway, Dean... Uh, been worked with Frank at Bottega there for a long time. Jerry Brown had partners, but uh, primarily it was Jerry Brown's restaurant, uh, Watermark. Uh, and he wanted to open an upscale Southern food restaurant in the style of Frank Stitt or a Frank Stitt style restaurant, uh, which would be Highlands Bar and Grill uh, in Birmingham, Alabama. 
for those of you who don't know, Highlands Bar and Grill has been won multiple James Beard Awards. Frank has won multiple James Beard Awards. Most recently, I think two years ago, he was he won the James Beard for the best restaurant in the United States. And his uh, pastry chef, Dal Esther Miles, won the won the James Beard Award for the best pastry chef in the United States. Who and she's been with him. She actually worked has worked with him for for over thirty years. So anyway. Jerry went to Frank and asked Frank to work as a consultant for him in opening the watermark. And Frank basically uh, was too busy, but basically had no interest in, in doing that type work. But then Jerry asked Frank if, if he would mind if Jerry asked uh, Dean, his general manager, if he could ask Dean to do it. To do it. Uh, Frank gave Jerry his blessing. So Dean became involved with the project and worked for a while. And, and I was no longer at Bottega during this period of time. I had moved on and actually was uh, with a company in Auburn, Alabama. But it was through Dean's recommendation that I was introduced to Jerry Brown. And that's how I, I came. I did an interview. That's how I, I was uh, brought on board. So you've got Highlands Grill, Bottega, Frank Stitt, who... I mean, is doing it right. He's an innovator. He's using the highest quality ingredients. You didn't go to culinary school, right? So I, did, you, I did not go to culinary school. You're a chef to who kind of learned from people, almost just kind of took your innate talent that you had and then applied that with influence and learned Southern cooking. Yeah, but, but before we move away from Frank Stitt, I, I've got to say that, uh, you know, in my lifetime, I have worked with two people that I feel like are geniuses. And Frank would qualify as one of those people. And to me, a genius is not defined by necessarily somebody who is uh, more brilliant than the rest of us, but it is uh, defined by someone who has a vision or a passion that transcends uh, normal capacity, normal normal vision. Uh, he sees beyond what the rest of us see. For instance, I'm a line cook and I'm working for Frank, and it's a Friday night, and uh, and we're getting buried on Friday night. And there's uh, there are tickets working, and there are tickets back, and the printer is printing. And, uh, and we're putting together some fairly technical plates. And there's a salad, uh, a garmage, and an assistant garmage, and a grill guy, and a saute guy, and a pasta guy. And we're all working and communicating and trying to put things up together to be sent out to get simultaneously on tables and, and doing this dance. And it's busy. And it's rocking, and you're and you're trying to keep up, and you're you're working at you know you're trying to work at a, at a pretty high level, and the concentration and the heat and Frank pulls something out of the window, a plate, and he pulls it down, and it and every it's like everything sort of stops, and he goes, fellas, fellas, look at this, look how beautiful this is, how beautiful. <laughs> And he takes the plate and he walks it behind the hotline. 
and he's showing every individual cook how beautiful he thinks this plate is and how wonderful the ingredients are and the freshness and how well assembled it is. And the tickets are still coming in and the pans are still cooking. And he's just walking down the line. And he's just walking down the line because he is overwhelmed at the beauty of the food that's being put together. And that's genuine. That's not, <laughs> that's not, you know, it's like he can't help himself. It's maddening as, as a cook who, you know, it's like you've got stuff that you're trying to keep, you protect its beauty in the pan. It's like sure. you don't want it to be thrown back at you and have to start again. But uh, that's Frank Stitt. That's living in the moment too. You know, it's like you get 60 pound wheels of Parmesan cheese and you break them down into little pieces. And we had to hand grate all of the cheese because that cheese came from an artisan. That cheese was made by somebody who devoted his life to making cheese. Yeah. And we needed to understand what went into the production of that cheese and the 18 months that it spent on the rack and the time it spent in the ship on the boat coming to the United States and what it was that we were using and not to overuse it and to treat it as special as it was. It's, it reminds me of um, the interview I did with Chef Andrew Little from Josephine. He talks about a potato and he says, if you have to take a seed and plant a seed and then water it, fertilize it for three weeks, come back every day and water that, right. and maybe three, four weeks, and then you dig up a potato and you have to wash it off and you've got it there, you're damn well going to cook it the right way. Right. You're not just going to go, ah, it's just a potato. I'm just going to peel it and throw it. Like, you're going to do something special with it because you now there's a, there's a, a relationship you have with right. the food. Right. It sounds exactly. like that's what he's doing. And that's one thing you taught me. So whether you realize this or not, you have a young, impressionable 25-year-old sales guy who walks into the watermark and we started talking and your standard of excellence was so high. There's nothing about what you were doing that you were going to allow to not be perfect. Watermark was the per it was a perfect restaurant. It wasn't, you're, you're going to tell me it wasn't, but as far as anybody else is concerned and what you taught me was, I don't want you to walk in here and sell me crap. I don't want you to come in and go, Hey, this is the, this is the cheaper. I remember red bell peppers because they have Holland bell peppers, which is an 11 pound pack and they're, Hoop house grown, they're perfect, thick-walled, beautiful red bell peppers. Then I got a bulk red pepper that's a bushel and a ninth is what they call it, but it's a 35-pound, and it's all kinds of misshaped, just the random red peppers. And I said, which one do you want the one that's, do you want the Holland pepper or do you want the bushel? Then I go, the bushel's a lot cheaper. You can probably get a lot more out of it. And you went, I do not ever want the cheaper option. I do never, I never want the least quality. If you have something that's a higher quality, that's what I want. That's what the guests that come into my restaurant deserve. And it just stuck with me because I'd never heard that. Every chef wanted, what's the cheapest thing that you have? What's the, I want the, the shittiest product. I don't even care because I'm just going to chop it up. But you were, no, I want the best because I cared about every single ingredient that went into that food. And it showed, it showed in every detail of that restaurant. And I was mesmerized. I was just, 
I want to learn from this guy. That, that's the aura that you had for me. The effect that you had on me as a young salesman was, I just want to, that, that mentality was so next level in this city. And I want to say thank you for that because you motivated me when I was younger. And that, that's, that's the level you brought to the table. To me, it just seems so, it seems so obvious. First of all, it's like when we, when we built the watermark, we put in a six by eight cooler. And the whole idea was that we were going to cook fresh food every day. It was our job every day to bring in fresh food. We were only open at night, but we had a daytime crew that did the production. You know, we were expensive, but we, you know, I don't think we were astronomically expensive. You got, you got what you paid for. We, we did, we did fresh stuff. We rolled it every day. We got the freshest. I had seafood accounts in Florida and I had, I had a seafood account in Hawaii where I got my tuna and the, and the guy would call me when the tuna boats were, were coming back into dock before they hit the dock. And he would say, I've got this big eye blue tuna coming in and it weighs this much and it's going to cost this much. And I can have it to you tomorrow afternoon at three o'clock from Hawaii. So it would be on the boat before it hit the dock and I would be ordering it and I would have it in Nashville at three o'clock the next day. Never frozen. No. Straight from it, Hawaii. In, it had been in the water the morning before I had it at three o'clock the next day. I don't know if it was a flounder or if it was a skate, but you were showing me the top level ingredients in everything you did. By the best. So Watermark, best restaurant in the city, was amazing. But so I'll never forget the day that you called me and you said, I'm no longer at Watermark. And I was like, what? Like, what the hell? And I could tell in your voice that something was awry. Like something, and you were, it was almost like you were hurt. But that separation, what happened? Why, why did you leave Watermark? It still hurts me. Listen, at the Watermark, I, I got to tell you, first of all, it's, it's a funny story. Uh, it was a popular restaurant, and we all got a lot of press. Everybody's ego was large. Uh, everybody's head was large. And uh, yesterday I was looking through some old watermark menus and I looked, you know, the first, like the first six months I was looking at the menus and I was thinking, man, these menus suck. <laughs> People were writing some really nice things about me and man, these menus suck. <laughs> and then I was looking at the, like the, the second six months and it's like, yeah, these are a little bit better, but God, they're terrible. And then in the second year, I could see how things kind of, it got, because I've always preached, you know, uh, as, as I learned from Frank, you know, seasonal menus and, and fresh ingredients, just the way the menus let, laid out and the, the fish, the meat, the steaks, and, and how the, the balance on the menu. So anyway, I, I just, funny story, me on me, seeing, seeing the development. And I, and I could see, I could remember sort of, feeling uh feeling overwhelmed and sort of the, the terror of, of just trying to keep up with the volume it, it you know it wasn't six months into it that we were we were a 160 seat restaurant and on friday and saturday nights we were serving uh, close to 300 uh with full two turns in yeah which which is which is a lot which for for an upscale restaurant like that is is a lot <laughs> 
a restaurant that redefined fine dining in Nashville, in my opinion. Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I was new to Nashville 15 years ago. I know that there, there had been the wild boar. Uh, I know that there had been uh, a couple of other Mario's uh, Mario's is still open uh, and sort of teetering on the way out. We'd been open for two years and we were no longer doing 300 on Friday and Saturday nights. And uh, the owner thought he was a reason for the success and the general manager thought, manager thought he was a reason for the success. And I thought I was the reason for the success. And, uh, those guys, the general manager and the, and the owner thought that we needed to, uh, this is my take on it. I think that they thought that we needed to, uh, a kick in the arm, uh, a kick in the pants, and we needed to make some changes. And, uh, the general manager had a brother who had worked, uh, in New York at Gramercy Tavern and, they wanted to go in a more uh, New York fashion. And uh, I had worked for Frank Stitt and I thought that we should uh, double down and be more Southern. And listen, I am, uh, I started in this business. Uh, first restaurant I ever worked in, I was one of five partners. We were all young guys. I learned this business by sitting around the table, arguing my point. Standing up for what you believe in. I argued my point. That's how I found myself. <laughs> you argued your point and um, they felt differently. They felt differently. I mean, you know, that's, that's the way it goes. What'd you learn from that experience? I learned how to run a successful restaurant. Uh, Nathan Lindley was a, uh, a great general manager. In as much as, uh, as I demanded excellence in the kitchen from my staff and the quality you know, Jerry, Jerry Brown demanded that of me, I think, as an owner. Uh, I demanded it of my staff, but Nathan also demanded it of his staff. We just didn't spare any expense on service either. You know, we had, we had food runners and barbacks and waiter backs, and uh, I think that was as much the reason for our success as the food. So what do you think went wrong? Why, I mean, why were you not doing 300 covers? Was it competition? Was it, you said that you guys all had egos. You all thought you were the reason why it was successful. What was your reason why it wasn't successful? Not that it wasn't successful because you were still doing business, but. Well, I think because it was, you know, I think competition, I think the fact that it wasn't, you can only be new. You can only be the new kid on the block once, you know, I'll still go back to, we didn't try what I believed we should have tried then. And, and, and I think, you know, you just. What should you just stick stuck with the Southern? I, I think, yes. I mean, you know, that's in the same way that, uh, that Frank has been successful for almost 40 years. I think that's, that's, that's what you do. You, I'm sure there have been years where he hasn't been as successful as other years, but uh, we could have done more with wine sales and, food and wine pairings. And, you know, I look at the menus that I wrote there, there weren't, uh, we didn't really link ourselves to local, local purveyors necessarily, local farmers. Uh, of course this was, you know, 12 years ago and that, that really wasn't the, wasn't the way people do it. We're doing it by then, but we hadn't taken leadership in doing that. And, and I think, you know, that's what I'm saying. We could have, and I think we should have been at the forefront of, uh, of doing those things within the community. I think that would have helped us. It sounds to me, because 
through all of my experience working with all of the different chefs and restaurants that I have and through my years in operations, there's some finite aspects of running a restaurant that you have to have, right? So you've got to have creativity in a chef who has the ability to be um, creative and they've got to know their kitchen, they've got to know the business behind running the kitchen. So a chef's such an interesting thing because you can write a menu, but then you also have to manage a staff and all of that. You have a general manager, you've got an owner, and the tough thing is that you've got to be able to balance all of those things together. So many people get into owning restaurants and they've got a great chef, they've got a good general manager and an owner, but they all have three different opinions. And there's a book out there. And if you're out there and you have a restaurant, I'm getting at is there's a book out there by Patrick Lencioni and it's called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And what it talks about is absence of trust, talks about inattention to details, being vulnerable with each other, and having healthy conflict. And so many times I see restaurants where you have these egos and you have different people that have differing opinions and they take things personally. There's all this politicking involved where they get angry with each other and you, you said that to me and I took it personally when if you really sat down and you talked to her and you got vulnerable about it and you said, what's your ultimate goal? And you said, to take care of the guest. Mm-hmm. And you asked Nathan, you said, what's your ultimate goal? He said, to take care of the guest. Jerry, what's your ultimate goal? And he said, to take care of the guest. You're, okay, good. So now we're all in agreement about one thing. Everything here is about making sure that the guest experience is great. So now if I have an opinion about that, you can tell me you don't agree with it. And I can tell you I don't agree with it. And that's okay. I'm not telling you you're a bad person. Yeah. And there's a dynamic there that if you're listening to this out there and you have a restaurant, the five dysfunctions of a team are so rampant. I see them all over the place in restaurants I get to because people just can't argue effectively. You yeah. can't be creative in a room and it's okay to be wrong or it's okay to, to say, I'm not really sure that I that, that idea is going to work. And to be great, tell me why. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Having open and honest conversations with people without bias, without this fear of what somebody's going to say about your idea stifles so many amazing conversations that could potentially happen. I want to throw a book out there. Patrick Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team. It's on Amazon. Go get it. I mean, they're not a sponsor or anything, but if you're having some of these issues, this podcast hopefully will give you some ideas as to ways to help your business better. And I'm right hearing on. this and I'm going, gosh, if you guys could have all just set your egos aside for a minute and not taken anything personally and said, let's figure out a way. We all have the same goal. Right. We all want this restaurant to be the best damn restaurant in the city. How do we work together? Yeah. True that. Maybe things, maybe things work out differently. Yeah. So you left there. So let's talk about your progression to where you got today. Where'd you go from there? You went to the standard. I went to the standard. The standard at the Smith house. Standard at the Smith, yes. Now the history behind that house, the oldest private rent. What it, it's, 173 years old. It was a boarding house, built, built as a boarding house. Wow. 18, 1840s. It was uh, purchased by uh, a group of Jewish businessmen, turned into a uh, private club at the uh, turn of the 20th century. It was, they built a ballroom on the back. It was the largest ballroom in Nashville when they built it which is laughable. It's not as big as a basketball court. At one time, it had, uh, I think, two bowling lanes in the basement downstairs. I did not know that. 
it's a three-story house. I think in around 1910, 1912, they, uh, they moved the club and it was purchased by a private citizen who became, uh, he was an optometrist and he and his family owned and operated an optometry company. They lived in the se- on the second and third floor and uh, had an optometry business on the bottom floor for like 75 years. The man's daughter also was an optometrist and she continued the business. The, the one fun fact that I just can't forget is that uh, the daughter uh, was responsible for petitioning the federal government to paint lines on highways. As an optometrist, she thought it would reduce traffic accidents. And uh, it was her idea. And Tennessee was one of the first states in the United States to have painted lines on highways as a test. Apparently it worked. Yeah, apparently it worked. Wow. What what aspects of the next part of your career do you want to talk about? Where do you want to land? You know, okay, so, so let me just tell you. All right, tell me. But here's my story. You know, I played football at Auburn, right? Yeah. When I was in junior high school, when I was in the eighth grade, we won the city championship. When I played freshman, I started B team, but then I got pulled up to the varsity as a sophomore and then won state championship junior year and was the captain of my state championship team, winning team my senior year, and then went undefeated as a freshman, freshman team. So in uh, eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, and 12th grade, 54 and four. Wow. You didn't lose much. No. And then my three letter years at Auburn, 13, 18, and two. Oh. Pitiful. Yeah. In those same three years, Alabama won the national championship. And Georgia won a national championship. So there you go. All right. So I'm going to go a little psychological on you. Yeah. You played six years throughout high school, 54 and four. A lot of winning going on there. Yeah. Defensive end, outside linebacker. You go to Auburn, 13, 18, and two. Two. You tied twice. 13, 18, and two. I had a gentleman on the podcast yesterday, Ben Ben Whitlock is his name. He's mm-hmm. the president at Mo, Mobile Fixture. And he's he was a professional golfer. And he said the one thing about he said he hated being a professional golfer because he hates to lose. Because he grew up with Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson and all those guys. Yeah. Like, I got my ass kicked all the time. Because I, I didn't yeah. he's like I hate losing more than anything. I remember my loss, I don't necessarily remember my wins. So the, that story being said, having all of those wins and then going into a sub-500 collegiate career, what does that do to your psyche? Do you learn to deal with losses? No. No. Never does that ever get easy? No. No. Everybody in my recruitment class, we were, we were, we were really tight when we got out of school. There are individual friendships, but as a group, we don't keep in touch. And I, I would guarantee that to a man, every one of us feels like a failure. Hmm. Wow. It stays with you. You still feel that feeling. You know exactly what that feeling feels like? Yeah. It's not just that we were mediocre and 
I mean, you know, we, we hung into some games. My, my sophomore year, we went four and seven. And every year, Alabama beat us 35 to six or 35 to three or 35, you know. Was Bear Bryant the coach? Yeah. Bear Bryant, sure, Jordan was our coach. You just got to, you know, you have that going for you until you lost to Bear Bryant. I mean, at least it wasn't like, you know, Lane Kiffin or something. No, it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, tell me something, Joe, because I appreciate your knowledge and expertise, and I certainly respect you. What's your view of, you look back at your menus at Watermark and you said, these are some pretty bad menus. There's been an evolution in this city since you've been here. What are your thoughts on it? <laughs> that much, huh? I'm not sure I want this published. Um, you can say it and we'll decide. I think there are a lot of people doing some very interesting food. All right. Listen. It's a loaded question. Loaded statement. Well, it was a loaded question. You're asking me to make personal commentary about people's food who they care deeply about. You're asking me to be a food critic right. as a chef. Maybe, or just a, a, the whole city has changed. Now we have pedal taverns and tractors pulling bats rats up and down the street that we didn't have. The gulch, when we were, when you had watermark in the gulch, there was, there was no, all the stuff in the gulch were, wasn't there. There were railroad tracks across there the street. Railroad tracks across the streets. I mean, it doesn't have to be about one individual's food. I mean, that question can be just what are your thoughts on what's happened to Nashville? And when I say what's happened to Nashville, we've intentionally okay, let me, let me, happened to All right, let me tell you. Let me put it this way. Let me preface the story. Yeah. I was thinking about this today, and, and then when I was thinking about it, I was thinking, you know, am I really this freaking old? But when I started cooking in Birmingham, Alabama, if you ordered red peppers – there was a skip day because they had to order them from Atlanta. I mean, it's fancy. if you went, yeah, it was fancy. If you went to the farmer's market, you got potatoes, eggplant, yellow squash, zucchini, sweet potatoes. You got what the farmers grew. You suntan peppers. In Alabama. Yeah. And, and that was it. Celery, onions, you know, uh, corn. There was no such thing as specialty. There was no, you, you couldn't order stuff from California. And those were your limitations. That, that was your larder. That, that's farm to table. That was it. You know, I have been so fortunate and so blessed to have been a chef, to have grown up in an industry as it has grown up, as it has developed. You know, I, I talk about, I work, I work for Frank. Frank was a philosophy student at Berkeley uh, when Chez Panis opened. And he happened to get a job in the kitchen at Chez Panis. Frank wanted to be a sommelier. And he was going to France to learn how to be, you know, on a wine tour. And, uh, and they helped him plan his wine tour and schedule, uh, schedule uh, some time with Richard Olney, who was an American living in Provence. And Richard Olney, I mean, young guys won't know this, but there's a whole series of cookbooks made by Time Life 
Richard only wrote every recipe in all of those like 13 or 17 books in France, from France, for Time Life in that cooking series. Richard Olney was the inspiration for Alice Waters, one of the inspirations, I don't know Alice Waters, but he, he was her inspiration at Chez Panisse. Frank, I think, ended up staying with Richard for like six, six weeks. When he came back to the United States, he's from Cullen, Alabama, he decided to open a restaurant called Highlands Bar and Grill in Birmingham, not to be a sommelier. The point that I'm that I'm trying to make is that, as an as an industry, those the chefs that when I when I work with Frank, Frank used to do these wine dinners, and I, the four years that I I was there, uh, I was able to work with uh, Hubert Keller. You guys will have to look, look up Hubert Keller. He had a restaurant in San Francisco called Florida Lee. I was able to work with Charlie Trotter at Trotter's. I was able to work with Susan Spicer from New Orleans. I was able to work with uh, George German and jo- Joanne Colleen from uh, Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, I was able to meet a Kermit Lynch, great wine importer. I was able to, to meet Bruce Nyers, who worked for Kermit Lynch, but whose wife was the hostess at Chez Panisse. These people are all interconnected. It, it was a community and a camaraderie. But the food that they made had integrity. And the wine that they made had integrity. And that's what's missing. That, well, I don't want to say that's what's missing because that's that's – that's a wholesale statement. I would just ask the chefs and cooks, does your food have integrity? It doesn't matter if it's beautiful. It doesn't matter if it's, uh, you know, if are, are the freaking purple kumquats that you got for Amazon delicious? Do they go with, do they complement what else is on the plate? You know, do they make sense? Are they cost effective? Are they necessary? Those are the questions that you need to ask. You know, just because you can get them doesn't mean you need to have them. Are they integral to the dish that that you're making? Just because you can get something, does that mean that you do need it? It's an interesting question. Just because you can do something, should you? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think some of your history is interesting because I think that Frank Stitt, you worked for him, that name has kind of followed your career. But I want you to know that you're somebody to me that I look up that I don't even think about Frank Stitt. I look at what you've done and I look at your career and all of the places you've been in Nashville and all of the time you've spent teaching me about product because I you've you've been always been there no matter what I've been through no matter what you've been through you've always had a level of respect with me that I've appreciated a lot I don't think I'd be where I am in this industry today if it wasn't for you your footprint on what you've done in this this landscape in Nashville I appreciate and um 
I want you to know that. I appreciate you. I, I listen. I, the passion that you have for what you were doing is like the passion that I had for what I started doing 35 years ago. What's your passion now? I still, I still have this passion for food, this passion for, I, I mean, you know, I, I was between jobs one time and, uh, I, I did a, an interview, a long interview with the gas company. And, uh, there was the question, are you the kind of person that would, that would rather be doing like a lot of this or a little bit of this? And I just resented the, it's like the whole premise of the question. You know, I, I, uh, I started out, I'll try to be quick. I had a car wreck. You had a car wreck? I had a car wreck. And How old were you? I was 26. 26 years old. When I was 24, I lost a child. When I was 25, my wife left me. When I was 26, I had a car wreck. I was living with my parents. I lost my kid, my wife, my home, my health, my job. I'm 26. I'm living with my parents. I've got a concussion. My skull is split from here to here. I've got broken ribs, torn cartilage in my leg. Uh, I'm sleeping 18 hours a day. After three months, I need some place to go back to work, but I don't have any stamina. I weigh about 175 pounds. A guy from college I know is running the neighborhood bar. Uh, they do food, you know, bistro stuff, chili, burgers, stuff like that. I go and I get a job as a waiter, two days a week. Three months, I'm a head waiter. After nine months, I'm running the whole place. I'm doing bar back, uh, service bar on weekends, waiting tables, dinner night. He leaves to open his restaurant, to open a restaurant for himself, and he's got some partners. He hires me because of my construction, because I've been doing construction. Tells me that he'll give me stock in his company, train me in the restaurant business if I work for $250 a week to build out his restaurant. So I build out his restaurant for $250 a week and he trains me in the restaurant business. After nine months, he puts me in the kitchen. First day in the kitchen, guys built making a soup. We've got a steam kettle. Guy says, chef's soup's ready. Chef goes over, tastes the soup. Joe Shaw, come here, taste this soup. It's my first day. I'm, I'm friends with, this, with the chef, but I don't know anybody else in there. I don't know how to cook. I don't know anything about the kitchen. I taste the soup. He looks at me and says, what do you think? I go, he says, it's dishwater. You made dishwater. <laughs> I don't remember the guy's name who was cooking. It's a pudgy little guy. That's what I remember. He says, man, put some salt, some white pepper, some celery salt, garlic powder, onion powder, you know, I go back to doing what I'm doing. Five minutes later, I says, Joe Shaw, come taste the soup. I taste the soup. It's like looking chicken soup. It's delicious. What happened? Yeah. <laughs> how did he do that? <laughs> he just made soup. <laughs> yeah. It's like, how did you know? What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh my God. It was magic. It's magic. Was that your aha moment? That was it. The next day I came in, I said, get another manager. I'm going to be a chef. Like if I can make something like that, that this is magic anyway, but that's how it is. This guy, Joe Lynch was the owner of the restaurant. Uh, he had been trained by Dave Wattell. Uh, he was a sale maker manager. The four important 
uh, rules of a successful restaurant are uh, quality, service, cleanliness, and value. I learned those. I stayed with him for another three months because I had been, because it was a, a successful restaurant. I, I didn't know how to cook, but I got a job as a kitchen manager. I learned how to make, make soup. I studied, you know, three, re three recipes. My job was to do, uh, to run the daytime line, to do the ordering and the inventory, uh, to make the daily special and the soup of the day. And so I would, I would read three to five recipes. What's the same about every recipe? What's different? What makes it what it is? What, you know, I, I figure out a daily special. I taught myself how to cook through that, through that. I, I met chefs in the, in the local uh, restaurant association. Uh, they taught me how to read cookbooks and, uh, I did that. I worked in a, uh, 600 uh, family country club while I was working in the country club. I got a job in a hotel working in a fine dining kitchen. I was working like a uh, hundred hours a week, working 60 hours a week at the country club and 40 hours a week in the hotel. Yeah. I got a job working as the, uh, because I'd been a manager and a chef. I got, I was working at this bistro, this uh, bistro two weeks. It was a new thing. Two weeks before it opened, the general manager disappeared. I signed a one-year contract to, to be the chef and general manager. You've had a restaurant life. You know, they have the NFL has the football life. Like, I mean, it's been a whole. I worked know, 64 years old. Yeah, I worked in hotels. I worked in country clubs. I did five years at uh, Kathy G. Gourmet Catering. She was a member of the uh, International Caterers Association. And the first time we went to the International Caterers Association, the first thing I went to was a, uh, uh, was a seminar on how to set up a field kitchen. The last day I was at the International Caterers Association meeting in Las Vegas, addressing 600 people in an auditorium on how to set up a field kitchen. And the last thing I'll say to you is that my relationship with the restaurant business is like the way people love ballet. So like a dance, like I don't have this mechanical scientific numbers relationship. It's like I can walk in a restaurant and I can tell you which waiters out of place, which waiters in the weeds, you can see which it. cooks the feeling. Yeah. And I know when it's all going right. It's a dance and I'm in love with that dance. I can tell you when the temperature's too high or too low and the music's too loud. And I can tell you which server is going to walk with the biggest tips and which, which girl is fixing to cry. It just, it's in my blood and I'm in love with it. I think that's what makes a restaurant person. We talk about restaurant people, right? There's nothing else I'm going to do. I'm never going to sell insurance. No. I'm never going to be a guy that's like, I feel like the total life. And just like, no, I get that. I walk into a restaurant and I feel that exact same thing. I can walk into a restaurant and go, that's not right. That's not right. That's not right. They didn't greet me. I didn't get the feeling when I walked in that this is a friendly place. Right. That the host, when the host is rude, for every little aspect of it, I start picking apart. It doesn't mean I can't enjoy it. Right. But man, when I walk in somewhere and they're firing all cylinders and they really hit it, it's, it makes it so much better. It right. makes me just, I love that. I'm passionate, passionate 
about that, about service, right. about seeing. Then you walk into a thousand kitchens, you can start seeing. I know I can tell just from the sanitizing bucket. You can look in and go, ah, this kitchen's dirty, can I in here? I mean, immediately, just from how people are cleaning. But that's what that's what makes us unique. Yeah. This is what we're gonna do. Yeah. That's what our passion is. Don't, you know, Randy, Randy is all the time. How can you do this? Why don't you do something else? Why don't I, I can't. I, there, I, I would fail at any other thing. I, you know, I can't sell food. It's, it, it, it's an endorphin rush, too. I mean, it's exciting. I, being in sales, I got married. My wife said, get out of the four walls of the business, which is why I got into sales. Right. Um, I was told my whole life that I will probably end up in sales just because of me being me. But it worked out well for me. But I miss, man, I've always said that the most exciting time of my life is three deep at the bar or when you're managing a restaurant and it's the middle of Friday night and I'll never forget. I'm going to paint a picture for you and you're going to get this. I was in Jackson, Mississippi at a Marigot restaurant and it was a Friday night and in Marigot, the owners live there. Which I'm sure you're very familiar with this. We're friends with the owner. Of course, we're Bill Latham and Al Roberts were the owners and the whole, the whole lobby is just filling up. And it's full Friday night in July. It's about 6 30, 7 o'clock. I mean, it's we're cranking. Yeah. Tickets coming out the line. As the manager, I'm the manager on duty. I'm the manager in the restaurant. Right. And uh, I've got a guy at the front host stand who's asking directions. He's literally got a map on the front of the host stand. He's going, But if I go down Old Canton Road, and I'm just going, what the hell are you? This is a restaurant, man. I got another guy who was a legitimate friend of the owner there with a five top. And this guy, you did not. He was one of those people you accommodated in every single way because he was a great guest. He was there four or five times a week. He was legitimately really good friends. He wasn't just one of those right. guys that yeah. said, oh, I'm friends with Bill. He's standing there. He's looking at me. He's standing at the bar. He's looking at me going, looking at his watch going, are we going to be sat anytime soon? I've got an entire full lobby of people. I finally look at this guy and I say, sir, I need you to put the map away. I need you to go to your car and do this. This is not what we're doing. And we're greeting people as they walk in. And service are going, what do I do about this? What do I do about this? And I look to my left and there's a kid walking through the middle of the lobby with his hand over his mouth and he's vomiting. And I just, it was that moment where you go, this is it, baby. <laughs> this is what we're here for. I got you. And what do you do at that point? That that's where leadership takes over. And you go, okay, you need to leave. Go see Dr. Johnson. I'm going to put some gloves on and clean up the throw up on the floor. Let's roll. And everybody instinctively just does it. That's I, I, I know right now I can look in your eyes. That's yeah. what we live for. <laughs> right. Those are the moments. Those are the moments. I had a similar moment where a snake came in the front door of a restaurant one day, and I was just like, I walked over and I just stepped on it and just threw it at the door. People were like, "What? The hell? Like, what do you want me to do? We're in the middle of a Friday night shift. That's what you do. You just you right. get it done. Yeah. I don't have time to go. Whose job is it to clean up, throw up? <laughs> no, you go put some gloves on. You just get it done because right. everybody falls into their role and they just do it. That's the beautiful moment yeah. of restaurants. The people that don't work in restaurants don't get. Right. My voice gets elevated. I get excited <laughs> talking about it. I can see it in your eyes. You're like, right. those are the moments. Those right. are the moments 
that get in your blood. Oh, yeah. Those are the moments that you can't recreate selling food. Selling, walking in, talking to chefs, it's fun. It ain't that. Right. That's the moment that, that we as restaurant people feed off of. We call it turbo boost. I call it turbo boost. You get right. in there in that moment of turbo boost. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Joe. You're welcome. Thank you for coming by today. Thanks for coming to my house. Thanks for oh, meeting with me, spending an hour and a half talking. I hate to uh, to cut it short. That's all right. But um, someone's ringing off the oh, meetings uh, right now. Yeah, yeah. So thank you, everybody, for joining. Joe, I'll give you a handshake. We're still socially Thanks. distancing, and uh, yeah. we appreciate it. All right, but, uh, all right, there it is. Uh, Joe Shaw from my back porch again. I got new microphones. Hopefully the audio will be better going forward. Man, I love that last story um, that I was telling just about working in at the Jackson Amerigo and just the level of insanity, that, that chaos that happens on a busy night. I know there's a lot of you out there that are missing that. And we're going to get back to it. We're going to get back to it soon. That's going to happen. I'm telling you. We all just uh, take care of each other and do the right thing. I think we'll be there. So um, I thank you guys for listening today. Please push the subscribe button on however you're listening to this. This episode will not be on YouTube. But we do have a new YouTube channel, so go check it out. We've got a few videos uploaded already. Uh, and our Friday Nashville Restaurant Radio Roundup presented by Spring Mountain Farms Chicken, is out and ready to rock and roll. So, hope you guys are staying safe, and uh, love you guys. Bye.